But it's pathetic at my age to still be on the road. I sort of say all my peers are, you know, uh, newspaper executives and editors or fabulously wealthy or novelists, and I'm the last person from my era still on the road, still out there being a hack. And But I've actively work to stay on the road because oh, I've been offered you know, office jobs before and I hate office jobs. I never want to be an editor. Editors have to deal with journalists and journalists are the worst people on earth. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour. I'm your host, Adam Burnett. With me is Sammy Ferris, our producer. G'day, AB. How are you, Sammy? You well? I'm really well and I'm really looking forward to this week's episode. Well, you should be. I hope our listeners are too. We've got a bit of a treat for them this week. Peter Lawler, Chief Cricket Writer for The Australian, is on deck. He was an excellent chat. We went into the terrific piece he wrote on Tim Payne for The Weekend Australian back in May. It was a story that was really well received online and Pete talked us through how he went about it. And he actually told us he wrote it in the space of six days, no less, Sammy. Yeah, I find that remarkable. He wrote 5,500 words in six days. I struggle to do 200 words in two days. So he's fantastic. Uh, what a great interview Pete Lawler is. He's got a story for everything, an anecdote and everything. He's a very worldly man. You can really tell that he's lived probably three or four lifetimes, I reckon, old Pete Lawler. He has. He, he's a fascinating character. One of the zanier characters on the cricket tour, and there's plenty to take from this chat for journos and cricket fans alike. We talked pain, but we also talked about the industry more broadly, as well as Pete's journalism background. And like you say, there, there is a story for every situation Pete finds himself in. Now, we'll put a link to the pain story in the episode notes. Yes, and while you're there, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to The Writer's Hour, wherever you get your podcast from. And also follow The Writer's Hour on Twitter at The Writer's Hour. So a big thanks to Peter Lawler for giving us his time and over to Peter now. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. No, it's a pleasure. Been looking forward to chatting, mate. Haven't seen you for ages. Where have you been? <laughs> well, Pete, like the rest of us, I've been uh, hiding away in this COVID world. But, uh, mate, how are things with you? How does uh, a journalist of your prominence occupy his time in, um, in, in this current crazy sporting climate when we don't actually have any sport? Yeah, well, actually, I was really surprised. When um, the, the whole COVID thing happened, they asked me to stand down for a month. And my nose was quite out of joint because I actually wanted to cover the story. You know, I was offering, I said, oh, I'll get on the road, I'll get in the car, you know, I'll drive around Australia, I'm into this. Um, but I adapted really quickly. I just loved the quiet. I just mm -hmm. loved it. And in, in fact, at the end of the month, I rang them up. I said, listen, I don't really want to come back. And they said, no, nah, <laughs> you're coming back. <laughs> and about <clears throat> three days before I was due back, the um, something that you'd be quite familiar with, Adam, um, that I started hearing word of that uh, crisis at Cricket Australia with the stock market and all that business. So I uh, broke that story on the Friday morning before I was due back on the Monday. So there's been plenty to report on ever since. There has indeed. Now, oh, I can't wade too far into that Cricket Australia conversation, which won't surprise you, Pete. But um, Too close it. to it, mate. Too close to it. <laughs> too close to home, too close to the bone, unfortunately. But um, one, I guess, positive to take from this has been the time that it's offered and and one, uh, one result of that time has been um, a fantastic Tim Payne piece that you did in, in the middle of May um, that had a, a really good reaction from a lot of people around the country. Did you enjoy putting that one together and, and was it a bonus to sort of have this time? I guess it's not cricket season anyway, so you might have had the time, but um, 
I think it was a five and a half thousand word piece for the Weekend Australian, and it was a <laughs> terrific read. And yeah, I mean, you can't do those sorts of pieces without a bit of time up your sleeve. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the magazine often asked me to write, and back when I first got on the Oz, I, I used to break my neck to get into the magazine, and uh, work. but now that I cover cricket, it's such a busy job. I often have to turn them down. But yeah, I did have a bit. There were, I thought I would have a bit of time to do this. But as is inevitable with these things, it turned out to be a very quick turnaround, in fact. I did the first interview on the Thursday and had it written on the Wednesday. In fact, I did the first interview on Thursday, thing that wasn't due for two weeks, rang the editor and she said, well, you better hurry up. I need yeah, it right. by, by Wednesday. So, uh, yes, I, uh, I pedalled very fast. Did I enjoy doing it? Yes and no. I must admit, no stories caused me that much stress, I reckon, for as long as I can remember. In fact, on the Tuesday night... I was kind of awake all night tossing and turning because I'd sort of put the put the basics of it down on the page and thought, I've just got this all wrong. I've just made an absolute mess of this. But anyway, I didn't have time to change it. And when I woke up on Wednesday, I read it for the first time. I went, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. And mate, people have been kind. People like words on shiny paper is what I reckon. That helps you reckon. Yeah, it does, does, yeah. does it help you? Um you know, do, does your perspective on it change when you start getting, oh, a few more people than usual are reacting to this story? Maybe it wasn't so bad. Or do, Does that change your view of the story? Yeah, yeah I'm always very anxious about my writing and, and my work. And so, yeah, it was good for the ego, to be honest, to see, uh, to see that response. How do you, how does that work, Pete? I mean, do, do you pitch Tim Payne to the Weekend Australian Mag or do they say, look, we want, an art, we want a story on, on Tim Payne? Yeah, no, I'm way too old to make the mistake of pitching. I just, <laughs> I'm looking for less work, not more. Um, no, they came to me and asked me if I could do a story on Tim. And I thought it was a good idea, actually. You know, I'd done most of the captains, you know, in my in my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that Tim had a pretty good – when I sat down and thought about it, I knew that Tim had a pretty good story. Initially, um, uh, another writer rang me. It was Greg Bearup. And he said, look, we want to do Tim Payne and I'm happy to do it, but I want to offer – but, you know, we'd probably prefer that you do it. So I said, well, you know, you don't know him. I might just go down the sort of boring old rabbit holes that I know. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's better that you do. But then they made a decision and said, no, you, you're, you're the person to do it. So I was kind of happy that they did too. So I felt mm-hmm. some some ownership of the story, having seen him up close for a while. Well, that's it. It's it's kind of, it still is your turf, isn't it? Is there a little bit of that in your mindset yeah. there? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I would have regretted giving it to somebody else, but I was just doing my best imitation of a nice guy. <laughs> and you failed miserably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, the, the start of the story, we'll, we'll dive into it. Um, mm-hmm. I have. I want to talk about a few other things today, but, um, you know, we're on the topic of pain now, so we might as well jump into it. I, I guess, first of all, Tim Payne's story has been told in cricket st- circles, right? We know what's happened across the last three years and it is a good story but how do you as you kind of said you don't want to go down the same old rabbit holes um mm. you, how do you approach it um when it's already been told well you you do have um one little bit of uh, latitude with with a, a magazine piece i reckon yeah in it that in that sort of format because it's the weekend australia magazine so you're not necessarily writing to people who read the sports pages yeah Yep. And sports people will read that yarn. but And you'd assume a lot of people would know the Tim Payne story. But I, uh, quite a lot of the response that I got was, gee, I didn't know those things about Tim Payne. Mm. So you do have that. I don't think about what I do a lot, but <laughs> it was more of a, a chance to tease out 
who Tim Payne is rather than what his story is. Uh, I didn't. I don't think there was anything in there that was breaking news about Tim Payne. Perhaps the only bit about it was that he's, he's got a touch of OCD and he likes to keep his sand shoes clean, <laughs> which I, I love that detail, to mm. be honest with you. Mm. So, yeah, I'll, I, yeah, it's more about teasing out who Tim Payne is and how he got to be Tim, this, this character that he is, I guess. And, and when you talk about having a different audience, are you conscious of that when you're writing? I mean, yeah, uh, well, it does, but you know, even in any, even in normal sort of uh, profile journalism of Tim, you probably don't get the chance to deep dive and maybe mm. get it from as many perspectives as yeah, well. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. think one thing you're probably more conscious of is that these people may not understand all the shorthand of mm-hmm. sports journalism and cricket journalism. So you've got to pull back on those old precepts of who, what, when, where, why, you know. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're writing for a Martian, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's just come to Earth today. Yeah. So you almost have to go COVID-19, the, the pandemic, that, you know. <laughs> and then, Pete, you talk about um, perspective, offering new perspectives, and um, that's how you start the story. And I, I reckon it was a great way in. You, I'll just I'll just take it from the top if you uh, if you'll allow me to read your words here. Sally Payne made her way along the corridor on the players' floor of the Cape Town Hotel on the evening that wretched test finished, and walked through the open door to find her son Tim staring out the window into the African night. He didn't hear her enter, so she eased into an armchair and left him to that moment of quiet contemplation. It had been a torrid, terrible time. The day before, young Australian cricketer Cameron Bancroft had been caught using sandpaper on the cricket ball. That morning, the captain Steve Smith and his deputy David Warner had both stood down. Sensing someone behind him, Payne turned around and looked at his no-nonsense mother. Jeez, Mum, I'm the captain of the Australian cricket team. Peas in a pod, they both shook their heads and laughed at the absurdity of the situation. If you didn't laugh, you'd cry, and there was a lot of that taking place in the corridors and confines of that hotel. Now, um, it was it was Sally Payne, Tim's mum, was was she um, your first port of call on this, or was she? A, did you sort of decide along the way to to chat to her? Uh, she's offered a. Well, I should ask actually. That I'm assuming that came from her interview. So I'm just unfurling myself from the fetal position. I hate hearing <laughs> my stuff read out. Um, um, I thought yeah. you painted a nice picture there. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, it, it was gift. Uh, Sally told me that. Sally okay. told me that story. I couldn't believe it. Um, it was just, it was so obviously the start of the story, wasn't it? Mm. You know, it was just a bit of gold. I mean, mm. if I didn't have that, I had other starts to the story, but that is an outstanding moment. And it's a moment that only two people um, witness mm. and experience, so nobody else ever knows. I mean, Tim's wife, Bonnie, and his daughter, uh, Miller, are in a different part of the hotel at that point. And it's and it also it sets up so many things, doesn't mm. it? I mean, you don't think about all of that, but the, you know, the 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 fact that I'm gonna go into his family and it is you know, that this is a chance to explore his family life and all those sorts of things, but also to bring that, that massive drama of South Africa and that moment mm. in the African night. But mm. I nearly got too carried away with it. I was I almost <laughs> rang him and to ask him what the view out the window was. You know, was he was he looking across, you know, the Table Mountain or the uh, you know, the Horn of Africa where the two seas <laughs> met? But uh, fortunately I didn't have the time to get that purple. No, uh, and I think the point being that it, it, it sort of marks ground zero, doesn't it, for the whole story. So at the fact that it was able to be conveyed so um well yeah so privately in a sense it was terrific by by Sally Payne 
Yeah, and, and it sets up the whole captaincy thing to, too, doesn't it? That he, he he becomes a captain in the middle of the most well, the most catastrophic events that Australian cricket's uh, ever endured. So most people, you know, it's a coronation, isn't it? You know, you, you're presented to the nation as this person, it's the high achievement of your life, but oh, no, it kind of had to put his arm into the sewer to get the captain's jacket. So Pete, tell us uh, for, for young, young journos listening to this, how, how do you um, approach, do you just say to Tim, Hey, I want to chat to your mum about this as well. Can I, can I grab her number and is it okay if I give her a call? How does that work? Yeah, that's exactly how it works. And, um, okay. and in this situation, I was really happy, uh, lucky, that these are really approachable and open people. They're not guarded in any way. In fact, they're, they're possibly too unguarded. Uh, but And Sally's a great storyteller and also gifted to the fact that, because I said to Sally, I, uh, we've met before on a plane. She said, I know it was, and I'd forgotten this bit of it, uh, it was on the plane from Cape Town to Johannesburg. Oh, right. There you I go. thought we'd met in Australia, but I sat next to Sally and, uh, and Bonnie and the baby on an aeroplane in the middle of all that. So, you know, about a day before the opening of the story, that opening paragraph. That's, and that's, you know, that's the advantage of being on the road with these people, that they have some familiarity with you and some trust. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, yeah. I know you've written about Tim before um, in different ways many times, but that long-established relationship helps. Yeah, it does. Oh, look, I, I think it does, yeah. Tim's, Tim was comfortable talking with me and, you know, I was reasonably comfortable talking with him. So we spent a lot of time on the phone. And look, you know, there's a, it's a relationship of uh, when you cricket's really different. I mean, it's really unique. You're working with what twelve players at the most all the time. You know, maybe a squad of fifteen, but uh, you've got to be really careful of your relationships. Um, you know, sometimes you're going to have to. And I say this to people. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, we might be friendly now, but one day I'm going to murder you in print. You know, you know, one day, one day I'm going to be uh, the guy that you hate the most in the world. Um, so it's, you know, it's, uh, the, the metaphors I use, everyone's seen the test, haven't they? And you're obviously familiar with that. As Andre Mal, the, the beauty of the test is the footage that Andre Malger gets, the cameraman, Doc, the guy we know as Doc. But he spent 18 months embedded with the team. He, they got comfortable with him. And one of the reasons they got comfortable with him was they could trust him. So he didn't ever push the relationship too far. There, there were... He didn't ask to shoot um, uh, selection meetings or he didn't have the camera in people's faces when they just got out like TV does or when they'd just been dropped from the team. He kind of sat in the background until they got more and more comfortable. So so by keeping your powder dry on little things and letting them be able to talk to you as a human being and, of course, mate, that's off the record. Yeah, of course it's off the record. There are benefits. So, you know, I know that a lot of people criticise sports journalists on newspapers say they're too close to their subjects and they don't write. There's a lot they don't write. Well, it's a balancing act between what you do write and what you don't write. And you can let a lot of little things go because you know that down the track, you hope that down the track, you know, it might, it might, it will pay off for you. And, and to have that relationship of trust with them is good. But then sometimes you've just got to be willing to load the, you know, knock on the door and say, sorry, I'm just going to have to do you over. Um, and sometimes that's, it's even better then too because you actually go, I really don't want to have to write this one, mate, but, God, you've made a mess of it, you know. 
you were drunk, you crashed the car, you, you know, you're sleeping with your wife's sister. Um, if anyone's going to give you a sympathetic hearing, it might be me, but it's not going to be that sympathetic. You want to talk about it? You know, so it, it can have those advantages in that situation too. You, you will be the only person that's there. And, and I'm going to ramble a bit further. In South Africa, when that team was shattered and in tears and, um, and at its lowest point, there were a few of us in the hotel and I kind of said, oh, guys, you know, maybe you don't want us here because we were right in the breakfast room with them basically. But they said, no, no, you guys are fine. You, yeah, stay there. We trust you guys. The rest of the media pack was outside. So we were privileged in some ways to witness things that other people didn't witness. You know, that's when Steve Smith came over and, and had a chat to us just before he, he found out. Oh, in fact, might have been before and after he found out his sentence, and uh, and I witnessed that scene that's in the uh, that that's in the story about uh, mm. Steve Smith and Tim Payne weeping. So that's that uh, trust balance. Yeah. So there's a couple of questions. That was a good answer. There's a few things I want to jump into there. We'll just pick up from what you're saying there in the hotel with Steve Smith. I mean, you used um, that viewpoint in the story. Um, yeah. Did you? I think, like as a reader, it adds. I felt as though anyway that it added some credibility to your account of this whole Tim Payne story that, okay, this guy's ridden the wave a little bit over these last few years. He's, he's kind of been there um, through the, through those lows and seen the highs. Do you think that's, if you can manage to, um, you know, if that is the case that you've been there, do you think it's important to include that? And, and you've done it surreptitiously there. You haven't written, I was there that day. You've just, describe the scene where it's obvious that yeah you were there it's been very difficult for me to break the one of the golden rules of journalism that i was taught early was there's no i in journalism no one cares about you or your story um journalism's changed and so much more modern journalism is very uh, me i me mine you know people writing about themselves and um good luck sustaining a career about writing your, about your own experiences <laughs> um so where was I going with this? Yeah, look, you're privileged to see those things and, and like a bowerbird, you put them away and they, they give your pieces some credibility. You, you, you use them wisely. Um, if you labour if you labor those points about being an eyewitness, it kind of becomes tedious. Mm-hmm. You only use them when they add to the story, I think. Uh, and, but you, it's not about placing you in the story. It's placing the reader in the story, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. Even in that morning, and I, I'm sure I've written this, I think, because I'd written a piece where I'd sort of wrote about, you know, they were taking the Steve Smith's face off the Kellogg's packets and, you know, blah, 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 um, and because he was losing his sponsorships. And I wrote, I just want to give him a, you know, so I, I wrote, I, I just want to give him a hug and tell him it's going to be okay, but I know it's not. And that morning he actually came over and he said, can I have that hug now? You, you, you use those ones. But you don't want me that TV guy, you know, sitting down with his face in front of the camera, you know, use my name in the press conference, please. Give me something, you know. You've got to give the reader something or the listener something. And it's not about your relationship with the, with the person. Mm. But, it, mm. but it helps, as you say, in that situation where it's just a simple line like, uh, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. And there was a lot of that taking place in the corridors and confines of that hotel. There are two things going on that line. I was really had to be careful of the tone 
of them both laughing. Mm. Mm. You know, that could have that could really jar in the story. Mm. It could look like, oh, here they are giggling in the middle of a, uh, a tragedy. So mm-hmm. I didn't, I actually sweated on that a bit, but I got it in a couple of words. Um, mm. Not, you know, I don't agonize over much, but uh, that, and what else? Did I, what was the rest of the sentence? How's my brain? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, what was going on in the corridors of that hotel? Yeah. Hey, but you didn't, you probably didn't need to be there to know that people were weeping in that hotel. True. <laughs> True, yeah. but uh, I, I think just that hotel, I, I don't know, it just sounds like, okay, he was there. And then, you know, you say, you talk about storing stuff away. Uh, I like that. I think that's a good lesson for, for young writers as well is if, if you did see something, you don't need to tip it all into the very first thing that you write. I mean, you, you kind of talk here, what are we, more than two years on from the story and you've talked about over the following days, things got worse. Smith was a wreck, crying constantly, inconsolable. Support staff were so concerned they wouldn't let him out of their sights. Bancroft appeared to have drifted off to a distant place, shadow batting in the hotel foyer as the chaos surrounded him. Yeah, that, that really paints a picture. I, I liked that. And then Warner was lashing out in his grief and had excised himself from the player's WhatsApp group, seeking the succor of his family. I mean, all those little details, they, they really paint the picture and they set the scene for the yarn to come. But, um, yeah, they're good little uh, tidbits to include now that uh, what do you do? Do you just file them away in, in the memory bank, do you, for, for a rainy day like a Tim Payne feature? Oh, look, I reckon probably all those details to some degree had probably got an airing somewhere before in somebody's okay. copy or in my copy, but, you know, they're all just pulled together and it's a very shorthand way of describing, you know. Uh, strangely, I've a 5,500 word piece, but I really felt like I was writing a tight news yarn. I couldn't dwell on anything too much. So, you know, I had to get that that thing away really quickly because I had to keep that story moving. That's probably an indication that you had some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, it was really, that that yarn was groaning. It was about six and a half thousand words and I still didn't feel finished. So, yeah. Okay. And right. there's a lot more that I wanted to get into it. But you put things away, but it, it's not just what you see. I mean, I've learned over the years now, you put things away when you're just reading a book or listening to a record or you have a thought. I mean, you know, Helen Garner has her notebooks. Nick Cave has his notebooks. Mark E. Smith from The Fall. None of your uh, listeners would know who The Fall were, but Manchester's greatest band. Um, <laughs> he had scraps of paper everywhere stuffed into the pockets of his pants. You kind of, you, you've got to be a bit of a bowerbird when you're a journalist, and you'll be a bit better bowerbird if your references are wider. You know, mm-hmm. if you're listening to a country and western song, you're going, I'm going to use that someday, and then you use it in the intro of a cricket yarn, or you know, or uh, I don't know what, but uh, find things like them. Hang on, um, it's funny at the start of this pandemic, I thought this is I'm writing about the pandemic, I'm into this. So I sat down, and in one night, I read um, The Plague by Camus, which I hadn't read for 30 years. That's a very obvious one, but then Defoe, I don't know if you know Defoe, he wrote uh. Robinson Crusoe. And is that what you read, Robinson Crusoe, or you read something else? In the 1600s, no. No, he wrote a book called The Journal of the Plague, of a, a journal of a year spent in the plague in London in the 1600s. And it was a first-hand account of one year in lockdown in London during the plague. Right. And I read that too. Uh, there's so much stuff here. This is fantastic material for later when I'm writing. And guess what? Talking to Gideon, <laughs> I said, oh, mate, just read, and he went, 
Yeah, so did I. And I've used <laughs> this in tomorrow's copy. <laughs> and he got how they banned bear baiting during the plague in London when Australia was just banning sport. Bugger, beaten by Gideon Haig again. Anyway. Scooped on a 400-year-old story. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. How yes, does that happen? Exactly what happened, yeah. you got to, you got to get up really early to beat Gideon <laughs> Now, Pete, you, you sort of talked about the fact that I think uh, the turnaround for this story was something like six days, which is is good going for a, an epic, a five and a half thousand word job. But I, I think I counted maybe eight um, quotes from eight different people, including Payne himself in this story. Um, do you work off a list at the top or do you um, figure out as you go, okay, all right, well, I need to get a line off this guy because Payne said this, et cetera. Um, I'm, 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 I'm not an ordered person at all. Mm -hmm. I'm not OCD on any level. I'm, I'm very chaotic. Um, mm -hmm. But with this one, I, I think I actually ended up interviewing 10 people. So okay. not, maybe not everybody made the cut. Um, and I actually had to keep a list of them because it, I, it was chaos and I didn't have time because I, I was in a rush. I didn't have time to transcribe all the interviews. In fact, I didn't even transcribe all the time I spent with Tim Payne, that just would have been wasted time. But no, I did have a list. I did have a list of everyone I'd spoken to, and I'd kind of tried to highlight the things that they'd said. But I had notes everywhere. Uh, my notes are really messy. <laughs> um, but uh, I did attempt to sort of go back and sift through and, and be a little bit uh, sort of uh, methodical in my approach. But it didn't really work. I've got a, something to say here. Um, when you're a news journalist. Uh, Sometimes, particularly back in the old days when I was a kid, you'd come back with a notebook full of notes about what had happened and all your interviews and things, but you didn't, you're so busy, you don't even have time to look at that notebook. You just have time to type. You actually don't have time to pause. And that's when you actually sift the essence of the story because the most important things come to you generally. Yeah. There's a danger in a feature because, uh, a lot of stuff gets lost. That's why I try to be a bit more methodical. But it, even in, with this feature, I relied on that system of generally I don't need to transcribe that interview because that was the best bit. So I just go to that point in the interview and grab that quote. Um, so the best stuff generally rises to the top and your first thoughts generally your best thought too. Well, that's with news anyway. And with feature telling, you're telling a story and people tend to start their stories at the most interesting bit, don't they? Mm. They don't. Uh, uh, we all have those friends who like to start at the beginning um, and you have to sit down and make two cups of coffee and listen to them take you around the Cape. But the best stories start at the good bit. I consider myself more of a, well, these days, more of a reporter than a writer. And, that, and I love the time. I love time limits. I love, you know, you've got 20 minutes to write this, do your best. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, it gives you a fantastic excuse if anyone criticises you. <laughs> uh, you, you've got to sublimate your ego because sometimes in, after 20 minutes you look at it and go, this is the most miserable piece of pile of poo tickets, as uh, Robert Craddock always said. Um, but that's all you've got time for. There's no re no time for rewriting or anything like that. You know, Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson and all the old blues players always believe that uh, when you recorded a track with a band, you did it once because every new take loses a bit of soul. Um it's not quite as good. So lay down the first track and then and then move on. That's like what I it. like about journalism. Yeah. Did you? Also, I'm lazy too. <laughs> I, and, you know, and I ha and I'm sort of ADD. I can't sort of concentrate for very long on the same thing. <laughs> 
Did you, were you uh, in a position where you could drop everything else for this, the, those six days that you worked on pain? Uh, for, I think pretty much I'd have to check back. I think I might've filed a couple of quick news sort of cricket yarns to keep, you know, keep the pot boiling, mm-hmm. but they were done very quickly. Uh, no, I actually, yeah, I did. I even gave up my weekend for that. Yarn. I, said, <laughs> I got a bit nervous. I worked through Saturday and Sunday on it. Yeah. It, it was a lot of work. Yeah. 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 Well, you can tell when you interview 10 different people and I assume you spoke, you said, you know, a series of lengthy conversations with pain, you know, what are you, what are we talking? Probably three hours of back and forth at, at least. Oh, at least probably four, yeah. And okay. I did say once or twice when I was tearing my hair out at the end, I've made a mess of this. I should have just interviewed Tim Payne and written an interview with Tim Payne because when you've only got a short amount of time, that's really easy. But, you know, when you're trying to get all those voices in, it was quite difficult. Who do you think gave you the best stuff outside of Payne himself? His mum. Yeah. Yep. She was fantastic. I mean, that, that intro that she gave me was fantastic. Mm. She also gave me that line, uh, the little blonde boy from Lauderdale. Mm. That was about you know, mm. everyone on the island knew this little blonde boy from Lauderdale who was just half the size of everybody else at cricket and footy but mm. twice as good as everyone else. They didn't know his name but they knew what he looked like and where he was from. That, little ta- that, that was a gift that he came from a little place called Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. And the other... Robert Shaw, his uncle was pretty good. He yeah, gave me the, yeah, okay. about how he used to bounce him in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, it was quite good. Yeah. Um, just on Payne's mum, as you say, like you, you knew it was the intro, but just the little details she gave you. As you said, she must have been a good storyteller because, you know, the fact that he didn't hear her enter, she eased into the armchair and and just let him do his thing. Like that really sort of sets the scene and paints a nice picture, doesn't it, of a mum just watching her son in a pretty uh, momentous moment in time. It was a gift. It was just a gift, her telling me that. I got so excited. But as <laughs> I said, it did, it, there was just, just a bit of, re, just a bit of, engi- it just took a bit of engineering to make it look like they weren't celebrating the moment. You know, it was a moment mm. that they couldn't celebrate mm. or didn't, didn't necessarily come through in the transcription of her quote. So it, it took a little bit of that, you know, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. I mean, that's such a cliche. But sometimes that's why they're cliches. They work. They work mm. well sometimes. Those phrases. And uh, Robert Shaw talking about the backyard battles and and his mum calling him the the little blonde boy from Lauderdale in Lauderdale. Which, and- which by the way, a sub took out. It just called him the little blonde boy. And I rang the ed- and I don't normally actually. I shouldn't admit this, but I rarely set like they send these stories back, and I hate rereading anything I've written. But I kind of cast my eyes and got to that, and I rang the editor who, and I said to her. Well, I don't know about taking out, making it just the little blonde boy. I said, I love the geography of the Lauderdale. Mm. Mm. He said, I didn't take it out. A sub took it out. So we, we reinstated that bit. So was, I'm glad I fought for that little, that word. <laughs> Tiny victory. <laughs> well, you talk about the, the pains themselves, um, Bonnie and Tim, and, the, and their kids are growing up in Hobart, just like mum and dad did, just like generations of their families have. Both are fiercely proud of their Tasmanian heritage and have roots deep in the sporting turf. You know, later Payne talks about um, Tasmanians being a, a special type of person and catching balls at eight o'clock in the morning at, in in the Tassie winter than you can catch them anywhere. And then all the descriptions are, that Matthew Wade gave you, and when you get those details around the place, you're really starting to paint a picture. Yeah, I was wondering if I laboured the Tasmanian bit too much. 
I was playing to the audience. I should admit it. The editor of the magazine's Tasmanian, so I knew. <laughs> but uh, the sense of place was fantastic mm. and important because I really do think that Tasmania is unique, and mm. you need to draw that picture of where people come from and, and how they live. And I was worried that it was a bit cliched, and it. I'll say another thing. It was difficult to do because normally you would um, fly down there. And then mm. you drive around the streets. I mean, I've done that before. I did when I was writing Ron Brassie's book. We just jumped in the car and drove around his childhood and went into the houses and looked over the back fences and things like that. Couldn't do it because of the lockdown, could I? So, well, quite, I'm proud of this. Mm. Um, does anyone remember Google Earth? <laughs> <laughs> I got on Google Earth and found and got Tim to sort of walk me down the street. Oh, that's you a know. great idea. Yeah. Yeah, you know, not not sort of house by house, but mm. it was just like, you know, see that place on the corner there? That's where we, you know, play that. And that's Maddie's pop's place over there and that's this and that's that. So, you know, that sense of where the beach was and the cul-de-sac. And yeah, right. So you had that up on the screen while you were Zooming with him? Is that? Yeah, yeah. The second time I called him, I, I got the street names and I said, okay, so you live, tell me which house is yours. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, the sense of that little community there. Um so, you know, and that was another blessing too. I'll, I'll say something here. It's not necessarily a skills writer because it, it, there was a great story to tell. Um, I'd done a similar profile on Steve Smith for the magazine and I'd done similar things, but I didn't, you, there just wasn't that depth. There just wasn't that. Uh, uh, Steve Smith had only ever just played cricket mm-hmm. and really had never, he'd be a better story now. I rang his manager and said, you've got to tell me a little bit more about Steve's life outside of cricket because I just can't tease anything out here from Steve. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get back to you. Two days later, he he says, oh, him and Danny, have uh, they really like going out for dinner. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. uh, What, like to restaurants? Um, You know, and um, do they drink wine? Yeah. How does he collect? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. Okay. So there's my intro there. In fact, I could have, right? <laughs> if I'd been cynical, I would have led on that. Um, but Tim had a great story to tell. Yeah. And yeah. That, has, that whole sense of being Tasmanian is a gift. And I'd done a similar profile on Ricky Ponting for the magazine, you know, 500 years ago, but flown down and gone to his, but gone into his mum and dad's house and, you know, seen the backyards and, and experienced it all firsthand. That must have been before they had Google Earth or COVID. Now you can just do it all shorthand. All yeah, you can. You don't have to leave the office, mate. <laughs> or, or you said. <laughs> well, no, I think you've done well to, to get some descriptions in there. You, you also pointed out right at the top about um, that this isn't just a story about the Tim Payne story. It's about the person that he is now. And I think there's a couple of, um, you know, a teammate tips in his captain for being a neat freak. Payne admits he can be a little obsessive. The vacuuming, the fact that um, big day in our house, mate, Miller's just done her first poo in the toilet. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it makes him very relatable. Was that the point? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to labour that one because, you know, we were doing it on uh, – I, I didn't want to do it on Skype, um, so we just did it on the phone. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. I'm on the phone while he's toilet training his daughter. And I, I could have laboured that for a bit more comedy, but just just that quote worked pretty well, didn't it? I, exactly. I left out a bit. Of, oh God, this stinks! And I shut the door, <laughs> darling. But uh, 
yeah, it, get it, be at home with him. That was nice. It, it gave it that sense of being at home with him when I couldn't be at home with him, and that sense mm. of also that sense of what Tim's like. You said he's. We used to, our rock writer, who's a very close friend of mine, Ian Shedden, who's unfortunately died, drummer in the Saints, um, he would uh, do a lot of music interviews with people in the States or uh, in England or anywhere like that, you know, and they were feature pieces for that weekend review section of the Australia. And beautiful writer, Sheddy, good drummer too, um, decent bloke for a Scott. Um, <laughs> he would paint a picture of, of where the person was he was talking to. So he he clearly asked them when he got on the phone, describe the room you're in, describe your house, describe what you could see. And he would actually build this picture of where they were and not what they were doing. So when you read the piece, you actually thought Shetty was there. Mm, mm, but it's, I, I'd had a drink with him last week, so I knew he wasn't in that way. You know? <laughs> but, uh, it was a bit of a bit of smoke and mirrors from Shetty, but but it it all it worked really well. It put it puts you in 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 the place of the person who was talk where they were when they're talking. So you feel like you're talking to them a little bit more. Yeah, I I sometimes try to do that occasionally, and and you kind of I try to preface it or follow it up with, you know, these might sound a little weird these questions, but um, you know, just trust me in that every detail helps, and because because they're not they're not writers, are they? They they kind of think, why the hell does he care what's what color my lounge is, or <laughs> you know. But yeah, I just to, to avoid me coming across completely crazy. You shouldn't have to ask. You should be there. I well, mean, yeah. You know, Best case time, scenario. Get off your ass <laughs> and go and freaking do it. But yeah, unfortunately, you know, you can't spend the money or or it's not a fact, perfect now, world. And now it's, it's illegal. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, too much journalism's done from from the, from the office. You know. Yep. Yep. I've spoken to a couple of people on, on this podcast, Pete, and yeah, they, they certainly say that the closer you are to the subject, the, the better the story is going to be. Well, you know, Adam, don't you? Like, how much time do we spend on a cricket tour just standing around at the nets at training? Mm. I mean, we're basically standing around on, on the off chance, you know, just to make sure that nobody breaks a leg and that uh, everyone else sees it and you don't because well, mm. you've gone to the pub. But mm. it's never wasted time. You talk to people, you know, you talk to the physios, you might talk to the gate attendant, you might, you might bump into somebody who's passing by, but, but you just pick things up by being there and seeing things. And our mate Barat Sandarasan, who does he work for now? Um, for I think he's Crick Buzz. Crick Buzz, great writer, but he's the net nerd, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely. All, he's yeah. become the absolute, like he spends every microsecond in the net studying things and so mm. he writes these great pieces just based around nets and yeah, he's made this little niche really himself. well yeah 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 but it's you've like got to show up. yeah it's yeah. like what you're saying yeah. about being a bowerbird right and, and you've got to show up most of life is just about showing up you know yeah that's my career i just kept showing up <laughs> and if you're there long enough people think you must you must know what you're doing Pete, um, these these long form pieces, I guess they're few and far between for you at the moment because you, you know, your life is spent on a daily, uh, you know, a lot of daily news cricket writing. And I'm lazy. I'm lazy. <laughs> you get to be a little bit more expressive though, um, in these pieces. Do, do you enjoy that? Do you, do you? I mean, you start. There's, there's a part here where you write. Oh, but there's so much water to flow under the Tasman Bridge. You're almost getting poetic. Before those competitive little Tasmanian boys walked out together in last winter's ashes, plenty of water, pain, frustration, scandal, and misgiving. You, you know, there's no space in a news yarn for, for a little paragraph like that. 
do, do you like being able to push your own limits a little bit? Yeah, yeah, but I, I would argue that work at the Oz and the way that journalism's gone now, while I pride myself on my news breaking mostly, we're given a lot of latitude to write. I've got a really good sports editor who doesn't insist on pointy tops if you don't want to do a pointy top. Mm-hmm. If there's a better pointy top being a new, you know, someone said yesterday or this just happened, mm-hmm. uh, breaking news. Uh, if you want to entertain and if you want to write, write, and, you know, if you want a, an opinion piece, do it. So uh, I get that side of me does get satisfied. And even match reports, mate, match reports are no longer Usman Khawaja made 100 yesterday and Steve Smith failed, which mm. really would, you know. Um, they are about because when, uh, when I just started, people, even then it was changing, but once people didn't even know the scores. So the, the, the fact that you were writing a match report was to actually tell people what the scores were. Now everybody knows the scores instantly. Everybody's seen it. You've got to bring something else. So, yeah. You do get to uh, to write more, a little bit more, or, or bring some other skills to it. You know, get that country and western song working for you. Yeah, yeah. Know. Get that book that you read last night. I, I, I put one aside last night, not actually for my journalism, but seeing as we are, and people are people want to be journalists, don't they? Michael Chabon, I think the author is. I've just discovered him. He wrote a book called Cavalier and Clay, and this one that I've just started reading called Wonder Boy. He's one of the great writers, and. I actually look up, I have to look up the definition of a word every second page, but uh, he's not a wanker. I drank for years and then I stopped drinking and discovered the sad truth about parties. A sober man at a party is as lonely as a journalist. (laughs) Great lines. Anyway, there you go. Implacable as a coroner, bitter as an angel looking down from heaven. Wow. Where did you you discover this guy? Chabon. Malcolm Knox put me onto me. He's a good reader, Malcolm Knox. So I think last time I saw Malcolm, I said, I really need a, a gold-plated recommendation for a book because I'd fallen off I'd fallen off reading novels for a while. Pete, um, I guess we were talking about being a bowbird. You know, that's been a recurring theme of almost of this chat. But you, uh, we talk, we move later into this pain piece where you talk about his finger problems, and you're right here. Um, Ed Cowan wrote in his tour diary of the 2011 series that four weeks after surgery, Payne was back doing catching practice with a finger, quote, the size of a Hungarian sausage. Now, that just sums sums it up beautifully. Have you kind of, did, did that one, was that one in the memory bank or were you trying to, you know, how did you stumble across that in the six days you had to write this Payne piece? <laughs> Very sneaky, I've got to say. I, I remembered, I mean, I, I'm not a great reader of cricket books because there's too much cricket in my life, but I tend to put them on the shelf and if I am writing a profile piece on someone, I'll just have a look around to see what could contribute. And I, I, and I remember this Tim Payne, uh, Ed Cowan book that I'd read ages ago. It's, it's a very good book. But it didn't have a bloody index and I was in a real hurry. So I, I, rang, <laughs> I rang Gideon, who I knew had helped um, Ed with the book, and I said, have you got an electronic uh, file of that book so I can do a control F and find Tim Payne's name in it. And he said, no, I don't. He said, but I've got a bit of time, I'll read it for you. And I went, oh, don't, don't do that. But Gideon can read a book in about 45 minutes. I swear to you, I, there is no exaggeration. 40 minutes later, he came back and he said, there's a reference to Tim Payne on 
these pages. So you've got a Gideon Haig encyclopedia at your hands. <laughs> My research is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how that one happened. But yeah, beautiful. Uh, that's Bowbird. Is you have the books on your shelf, go to them, you know, look yep. at the index, find the references. And that's a great phrase from it. I'd actually yeah. rang Ed. And uh, if he's listening, I've got a bone pick him. He didn't call me back. He promised me <laughs> to call back. But uh, I think that worked better. That worked better anyway. He wouldn't have come up with anything as good as Hungarian. No, nah, yeah, it was perfect. And that finger was disgusting. Mm. I remember seeing Tim, um, some, it must have been years ago, down at Hobart, around that when he was come, making the comeback. And it was, it was his, oh, it was a horrible looking thing. He's, it was like one of those mole rats. You seen him? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it wouldn't straighten. I, and I remember talking to him in the foyer there at the, at uh, Bell Reeve Oval um, one one day. We did a quick interview with him. It's certainly not the be all and end all, Pete. But once you've written a piece like this, well, in this specific case, did you hear from Payne at all? Yes, yeah, I did. Do yeah. you send it to him? Do you out of no. like is that a courtesy thing or anything like no. that? No, no, I don't. No, no, uh, no. I don't believe you let. I don't believe you let anyone. Well, certainly I would never send it to them before. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. The only deal I'd ever make on that front is people say, I want to see the story. Mm. I, the, the answer is no. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I will let them see their quotes if they want to, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to check them, and that's all right because sometimes, you, you know, if you're like me, you don't have any, you know, you might have said something wrong or, you know, wrong emphasis. But generally it, it's generally it's a blanket no. And do you get do you get that request much? And no, if you, okay. And no, I don't. But just because I'm doing day to day journalism, so you know, I don't do a lot of inter, you know a lot of these long form pieces. So maybe people who do them get more get more um, requests. So yeah, uh, uh, well, Tim and I were texting um, about the story before it came up. I I I sent him I sent him a copy of the cover and said. Um, was the effect of that Botox program's paid off, mate. You still look pretty, uh, to which he denied taking Botox. I put that in my back pocket because I thought, actually thought he had been using it just between you and me. I reckon some of the players use Botox. So what's happened to the world? Do you, seriously. Um, uh, yeah, and so he did send me something back. I think he said, oh, thanks, mate, um, getting a lot of good feedback or something like that. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. It was all pretty jokey exchange. It was a jokey exchange. I try to keep it pretty lighthearted. I, I, I told him I, I made him look good, and he and he said, "Oh well, if you have, I'll buy you dinner." And I said, "I'm only going if you invite Virat too." So, yeah. <laughs> Meet him and Virat. And Rishab can uh, do the babysitting duties. How uh, did you know? That was there. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you reckon that's a, a reasonable rule for for people to consider if you know if the request is made? Um, to see the copy blanket no but look you can see your quotes do you do you think that's reasonable uh, on all fronts yeah but i don't know I, I could be wrong there may be circumstances where you've done it i did it i think i did it once when i was younger and really regretted it the bloody subject sent back all the uh, spelling mistakes and suggestions around <laughs> punctuation i was humiliated <laughs> because my copy's messy as you'd imagine i can't spell um so yeah, no, I don't. I know. I don't, I think, yeah, you you guys look. This is a relation. You, you just got to trust me or not. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't reckon you let people see see 
control the way they're presented. Pete, moving on from the pain piece, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your journalism background. I mean, mm. you, you're a cricket writer now. Writer. I'm a writer, yes. <laughs> did you did you stumble into cricket or was it a, a planned destination? And what do you think, um, would you recommend specialising to young writers or do you think they should keep their you know, options open and is it better to be a jack of all trades or a master of one? Yeah, I stumbled into it. Um, mm-hmm. I um, had been a feature writer on another paper and then applied to the Australian to be a feature writer there. I'd kind of, you know, I aspired to write for the Australian magazine, ironically enough. Um, and as almost as I was walking down the stairs, Chris Mitchell, who was the editor-in-chief in those days, um, said, oh, mate, can you just help us out? We sort of... He'd obviously promised the new sports editor another journo. So they threw me in there as a sort of feature writer in sports. That's how that's how fat we were in those days. We could afford someone to sit around and write features in sport. And so I went, oh, I don't really know anything about sport. I mean, I, I like cricket and I like uh, Aussie rules football, but sport's a specialist subject. And they said, oh, you'll be right. So I went off and read all those Sports Illustrated and, you know, uh, all those great American sports writers. I read all that stuff and aspired to be the great long-form weekend sports writing person. But somehow I ended up the uh, cricket hack yeah. <laughs> uh, completely by, you know. Then they asked me to go to India and cover an Indian cricket tour and I went, you know, it, no one had ever done a cricket match then who hadn't sort of done 10 years in Sheffield Shield and grade cricket. I mean, it was... It was like getting your bloody baggy green. <laughs> I remember saying to Malcolm Conn about six months after I got back, I said, I'm glad I got away with that. I, you know, I'd, I'd actually never covered a cricket game before and he nearly fell off his chair. <laughs> you know, I was completely ill-equipped. But anyway, that was that was good because you know, the, the, the game was changing. It wasn't about just writing match reports anymore. And if I attempted to write a match report, I'd get them wrong because I'm bad with numbers and um, detail. You also get to write about beer, Pete. So, I mean, um, to a lot of people listening, I'm sure writing about cricket and beer just strikes them as the perfect <laughs> career option. Um, how the hell did that happen? And how is that? What, what does that involve now as well? Well, when I was a feature writer on the previous newspaper on the Daily Telegraph, uh, we started a food and wine section and they asked me to help out and write a piece about beer for the first um, first edition. And the only beer I knew about was VB, which I drank, um, which cost $20 a case. Um, So I wrote, I invented this story that VB was really cool again, you know, like um, Blundstone boots and greyhounds and, you know, people, you know, it's like the, you know, the hipsters drink. I'm not even sure we had hipsters in those days. They weren't cool cats. They probably were. Um, So I wrote that rubbish. And then, uh, you know, it's, Here's a lesson. If you're ever asked to do something in journalism and you don't really picture yourself doing it for the rest of your life, do it badly. Um, Otherwise, you will be doing it for the rest of your life. So um, then I became the beer columnist. They wanted me to write a beer column once a week. And it was fantastic. Uh, It was really good fun. Um, I had to learn very quickly. I started home brewing it like, you know, I was about four days ahead of everybody else on this stuff and, you know, had to drink foreign beers for the first time. And there were, was no craft beer industry in Australia. There's only about three, you know, there was uh, uh, the Chuck, Chuck Hans beers, well, the James Squires beers. Little Creatures came out while I, about six months into 
writing. So it was all a bit of a journey of discovery. And it, it developed this fantastic relationship with all these readers who were obsessed by beer. Yeah. And you can see them yeah. out there now, can't you? Because on Twitter. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm really over it. I'm really oh, over yeah. it. You've had yeah. enough. I get bored by stuff really quickly. Um, so the annual happy. beer list that you do, yeah. is, is that a bit of a chore now? Uh, it's kind of a chore and it's kind of fun because I get to engage with everybody, you know, once a year again. But uh, mm-hmm. if I had more time, I'd, I'd like to write about beer and the industry and things like that. But uh, there are plenty of people out there who are far more obsessed about it than me. Pete, I can't help but notice uh, hanging on the wall behind you on the door, I think, is a um, Philip Hughes uh, what I think is the cover, the same photo that is on the cover of the official biography that you and Malcolm Knox wrote. Yeah, it's the same photograph. You're right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually the um, that's actually the um, order of service from the funeral. Ah, uh, uh, right. Actually, okay. enough. I've got all these sitting next to two other orders of service from funerals. I don't know why I collect those things, but yeah, that's from the um, the stadium, Maxville High School, Wednesday, three December, two thousand and fourteen. Mm, it's getting a few years ago now. It is, it is. And Pete, how does um, I mean, how does that transpire? The the process of not just writing the book, but I guess uh, what are the first pieces of this puzzle? Where are you approached to write this book down the track? Uh, in the is it in the weeks afterwards? Uh, can you explain to to us um, how that all unfolded? Yeah. I can't remember the exact timing, but I think that probably happened in the months after Philip died, a few months after Philip died, probably after the summer. Um, And I do remember that I said no, and I said no about three or four times. Philip's manager rang me. I know Philip's manager quite well. He was also Ricky Ponting's manager and coincidentally turns out to be um, Tim Payne's manager as well. Um, He said, I need you to do this book on Philip Hughes. Um, he was using it as a device to get some money for the family. Uh, you know, that he had been inundated with um, offers from people to write a book about Philip at the time and didn't want to, but then said to the family that we can do a tribute to Philip, it's your book, I'll commission writers, we'll make some money for the family. Uh, I said no, and I said no heaps of times because he kept asking me because I'd got myself into a bind. Um, Jim Mac, I was helping ghost Jim, well, I was ghosting Jim Maxwell's book and I was ghosting Mitchell Johnson's book. Jim's book had run over a year and Mitchell had retired a year early and so they were both due that year. And I had, and... And you had a day job. I had a day job. So I had two books to finish that year um, and probably in the next few months. And so I had no time at all to do the, to do the Hughes book. So then I kind of got conned into it um, because one night the manager rang me and said, look, I've got the publishers here, I've got Malcolm Knox on board, all we need to get this over the line is to know that can you contribute to it? So I thought I was writing a chapter for it. And I said, yeah, okay. And so the deal was done. The publisher rang me in the morning and said, great, um, you and Knoxie co-writing the book. And I said, what? Great, fantastic. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it wasn't the best year of my life, and I haven't written a book since. Um, was it was it a, a, a difficult no, one, given the subject matter? It was difficult, and it was a privilege, and um, because strangely enough, Noxie said, "I'm going to write about his cricket career. You're going to write about his early life." And I'm like, "That's counterintuitive. I've covered every 
minute of his cricket career. You know, I have a scene in my head from a hotel room with his mum and dad in 2009, believe it or not, that I'll never forget uh, when he made his debut. I was up there in New South Wales when he had the bat off with Jakesy to uh, actually make the team. I broke the story that he made the team. I remember writing it in a, in a Fitzroy backyard, uh, sitting there with some mates when someone when it got leaked to me one night. Um, so I thought I should have been writing about his career and he should have been writing about his childhood because Noxie's the beautiful writer, isn't he? You know, Noxie's a genius. But anyway, it was a real privilege um, and, and it was difficult to... I spent a lot of time up at Philip's parents' house and with Philip's parents and at that point they weren't letting anybody into their house. His mother wasn't leaving home unless after dark. They had shut themselves off from the world still six, seven months, eight months after it. And Greece's not always pretty. Um, it's not always noble, as it, you often see it represented. Um, and that was, that was some really trying times, but mm. also some really privileged times because I got to dig around through Philip's childhood. So, you know, going on to the cricket clubs and finding old school books and, and finding the, the, the kids that played backyard cricket with him and their parents and the coaches and driving up and down the coast and looking at bits and pieces and, you know, I clearly didn't do it very successfully, though, because my father said to me later after he'd read the book, he said, oh, yeah, it was all right. He said the first half of the book was really boring, but it got better later. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I wrote the first half. <laughs> Our harshest critics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so five years, Pete, uh, since you've written one. Uh, why and will, will you go again? Uh, why? Because... I was absolutely exhausted from uh, <laughs> writing three at the same time. I mean, that r nearly killed me. Um, uh, the right books haven't come along. Writing books is a mugs game. Um, when you've got a day job, if you want to earn extra money, get a job in a bar, you'll earn more money than you will from writing most books. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, it's got to be the right book for me to write it. And at that point I was toying with the idea that, Ghostwriting is easier than um, writing your own books. So I'd already written four or five of my own books and none of them have been about cricket. Um, so I toy with the idea that it's easier just to turn the tape, the tape recorder on and, and ghost somebody's story, but it had, had not proven to be so thus far. <laughs> and it, it's, it's hard work to make any money out of a book. So you've got to mm. find a book that's going to make you some money. Is a five and a half thousand word feature less daunting once you've got a, you know, you've written a few books? Well, it didn't set out to be a five and a half thousand word feature. I think it was meant to be three and a half to four. And I rang the editor and said, oh, I'm struggling here. I can't get this back. And he can, can you have a look at it? And she just said, oh, cool. We'll run it all. We like it. Uh, length never bothers me. If, if you've got a story to tell, it's really easy. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I can churn out 3,000 words um, really easily um, if it's just some sort of linear thing from an interview or from watching a game of cricket, um, I never struggle for length, to be honest with you. Uh, you just got to, I did initially because I was trained as a news journalist and, you know, telling the story was an economy of words. But uh, if you're a freelancer, you quickly work out that if you get <laughs> by the word, the more words you use, the better off you are. Um, so, yeah, no. And, and I work, and I write really quickly. I have a bit of, Write it fast because they read it fast. So, I mean, I'm lucky that I can write quickly. Um, my writing suffers because I don't labour over sentences or I don't reread it a lot. I kind of 
I am a bit of a first take guy. That'll do. It's really rare for me to change the intro of a story. Um, but sometimes I do get towards the end and then go, oh, geez, this is actually the best bit, so I just bang it up the top. But uh, you can have five different intros for stories. Sometimes I notice as stories evolve during the day, that was the intro, then something else comes on and something else comes on and something else comes on. You just keep piling them on top and it still works. It's, it's amazing how forgiving words are. Mm. They really, uh, you sort of think, oh, you can't do that. Well, you can, you know, and you can't jump from A to Z, or you can. And uh, I'm going to, I like talking about journalism, so I'll tell you another quick story. Um, I got sent to cover the 2000 Sydney Olympics um, when I was a, just a normal writer. Scared the living crap out of me. I never, you know, sat there at the swimming pool, watched a swimming race, and then watched another swimming race, and watched another swimming race, and they go, where's your copy? Yeah, what, from that? Someone who's had their face down a pool and went up, you know, like, where's the story? Because you've got to bring all that backstory with you. I got, I get a call in the afternoon, I was at the press center, quick, an Australian woman is about to win the uh, walk, you know, the five million mile walk, (laughs) Jane Savile. And our reporter can't get back to the stadium. She's stuck in traffic. You've got to get to the stadium and write it for deadline on edition because we're an afternoon edition of the paper. Um, stuck my uh, laptop in my backpack and ran to the stadium, you know. It was probably about 50 metres, but it felt like about five miles. Faster than Jane Savile. Yeah, yeah, well, and probably doing what Jane Savile was doing. Um, I've got 30 minutes here to get this in shape. And when she walks into that stadium and, and breasts the tape, we push go and we, we're publishing the paper and she's on the front page. So... Jane Savile, you know, the lonely miles, you know, no one round, all of Australia, the step, everyone's standing up cheering, the gold medal, this is a triumph, blah, blah, blah. Finish it. You see this little thing in the monitor on the corner as she walks into the stadium. It's right outside the stadium. This red paddle goes up and she's disqualified. <laughs> and you just go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, I've got 800 words here every one of them predicated on the fact that she has won this race, which is not, you know, this walk. I I think I just went into shock and just sat there staring at my screen and then the phone starts ringing, where's your copy? Where's your copy? What am I going to do? And I took out every full stop, the full stop at the end of every sentence and went, put in a comma and went, but it was not to be. (laughs) Well, that's what should have happened. And I thought, you know, uh, yeah, this is this is a mess. This this thing is Frankenstein's monster. But I read it in the paper and it was fine. But, you know, it's amazing. You know, words are really forgiving. You can slap them round. I reckon. Yeah, maybe being a, a touch a touch modest there. I think. Pete. I, I hope, I'm sure between you and the sub, uh, you managed to massage them uh, into something legible. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it truly was. It was a story that was entirely about winning that got torn, turned into a story about a win that was that didn't happen. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. More broadly, and I'll, I'll let you go soon because I've been I'm raving, hassling yeah. you for long enough now. But it's all right. It's all right. I haven't got my story yet, so I'm waiting. <laughs> Young writers, Pete, mm, trying to get luck. into this industry. We've seen you know doors closing, yeah. companies closing, yeah, um, the media world closing. Have you got some words of optimism? Okay, so you, you asked me before and I didn't answer the question like a good politician. Um, should you specialise? 
the industry is changing so much that I think probably you should now because I, I think people look for people with d distinct skills. But I think everybody needs to start. If you're going to work in newspapers and, and, and in media, you really need a broad background, like a, a basic news training. Or, you know, it's not essential, but it's really good to have that. And it's, and it's I've found it really handy, even as a cricket writer, that I used to be a crime reporter and things like that because there have been times where cricket has actually literally turned into a crime scene or something very similar. I mean, I've had, well... You know, we had Philip's death and we had, uh, I've had Peter Roebuck jump out, you know, commit suicide in the middle of a cricket tour. And I've had to turn around and report report on those. And that's it's not cricket reporting. And I've seen cricket reporters struggle to do that. Mm. So the more experience you can have at that day-to-day -day journalism um, and just the, 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 the real fundamentals of the field is better. But you don't need it. I mean, you know, you're... Yeah, beautiful writers and I see them come in all the time now and they just come straight into the cricket box and they write about cricket and cricket's their gig and there's plenty of room for those people and, and there's only, I suppose there's only other times when you, you need to fall back on the old training. Yeah, but I think what you're saying is good. I mean, a, a broad base is, is a good place to start, right? Which yeah, is a, yeah. makes it a shame about AAP. I mean, the, the avenues for these broad bases are, you know, decreasing right. by the day it seems at the moment well, it's a tragedy this whole iap thing and i and i don't understand it because you know we have fewer resources to um cover stories and have, so you know we can't be at once upon a time the sports section would be at the sheffield shield games mm. and everything there's not enough now i mean i'm the only full-time cricket reporter on the paper I can't be everywhere and do everything so you rely on aap to do the bread and butter work and because of that because journalism's changed, that allowed, frees me up to, you know, um, to do something else apart from just reporting the basics. But, uh, I don't get that. That's, it's a, that's really sad. I worry about journalism on that mm. front. I used to say to anybody, it's the best job, and that was before I was a sports reporter, 20 young It's the, To me, it's the best job in the world, and it still is, but I'm lucky and I'm not sure that any, everyone else will have the experiences that I have or the opportunities. And you've got uh, sort of a, a years um, built up. You got yourself some autonomy now as well, which I'm I'm sure is attractive as well. And th do you still love it? Do you still love what you do? Yeah, yeah. It's pathetic at my age to still be on the road. I sort of so all my peers are you know uh, newspaper executives and editors or fabulously wealthy or novelists. And I'm the last person from my era still on the road, still out there being a hack. And, but I've actively worked to stay on the road because oh, I've been offered you know, office jobs before and I hate office jobs. I never want to be an editor. Editors have to deal with journalists and journalists are the worst people on earth. Um, so it's really easy. And I love the hand-to-mouth life and, and that's why I love day-to-day -day journalism, not long-form journalism, because every day I, I wake, I don't, I don't go to sleep with a with a project hanging over my head, mm. working on newspapers, you just you describe the world as it unfolds, don't you? So you wake up in the morning, you know, yeah. There's this bloody editorial conferences in the morning. What do you do? What what are you writing today? I said, oh, well, I don't know. I've got to find out what's happening. You know, but I can't give you a plan just yet. But uh, I like that. I don't. I like just put it behind you, move on. Yeah. Pete, if you could interview anyone, living or dead, 
sit down, nice in-depth conversation and then write a nice long story about them, who would it be? Well, uh, yes, I'm not an aspirational person, so there's not many people. And I, I guess I guess that question sort of you, you want to interview one of your heroes or something, don't you? But meeting your heroes is, is so often really disappointing. I would have loved to have interviewed Prince, I reckon. I would have loved to have been in the room. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the performance artist Laurie Anderson. Look her up, very interesting woman. But uh, she uh, she shacked up with Lou Reed later in life. They had a New York warehouse okay. and that, that's a relationship that fascinated me. She's a real storyteller. He's a storyteller. They're out there, people. I would have loved to have been in that room. Yeah, terrific. Describe that thing. But no, I thought about this because you actually warned me that I'd be asked this question. And it, it, and um, there's a guy called David Berman. I'd never, and I actually had to look his name up because I didn't, didn't really know. He put out an album last year called Purple Mountains. And it's this kind of toe tapping, alt country, strange stuff. Sounds a bit like Graham Parsons. And they're these really catchy, bizarre, beautifully written songs. So I had to look up who he was because I just heard the music and loved it. And he he worked in a band called The Silver Juice, but he spent eight years putting together this record um, because couldn't find the right people to do it with. And he's and he's a troubled guy. Um, and he eventually got it all together, and it's a great record. And three months after it came out, he um, killed himself. And it puts the record into this, you suddenly realise that this record's a toe-tapping suicide note. Yeah, right. It's extraordinary. And it's got this real black humour about, and almost every song is indicating that I'm done with life and I'm getting out of here. I know, to this upbeat sort of country music um, (laughs) with with this great humour. And when did the album come out? Last year. Oh, it came um, out last year. You didn't just yeah, find it last year. Yeah. She's making friends and I'm getting stranger. Um, uh, the light of my life is going out tonight. You know, she's putting on a party dress. Um, I'm drinking margaritas in the mall. Um, there's songs about, you know. Uh, it's Anyway, I would have liked to have talked to him. Yeah, uh, right. So yeah. what would your first question have been? Was, <laughs> was, was this a suicide note? <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm just uh, probably just curious that I didn't really, I don't like music journalism, much music journalism, so I never really read about him, but uh, probably just, I just want to know about him. I want to know you could do an investigative uh, piece on him. That could be our, our next conversation on the Writer's Hour. There's this great line in it for COVID too. What is it? Um, he's talking about he's broken up with his, uh, his, the love of his life and um, was it? Now, when I see her in the park, it passes with no remark that we stand the standard distance, distance, strangers stand apart. Good COVID line. <laughs> That's an it. <outlet. laughs> thank you so much. It's been entertaining and uh, always fun. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it's good to chat. Thanks, man.